podcast listeners, I'm David Goldstein. And I'm Brian Brinkman. And you are tuned into the Beyond the Pond podcast. This is the podcast in which Brian and myself utilize the music of fish in order to introduce the listener to other non-jam bands that we think that they might enjoy using fish as a Trojan horse of sorts because we love fish. We are fish fans. But sometimes the problem with fish fans is that they forget to listen to bands other than fish and you'll be find yourself waiting in line at the DMV and then the woman behind you starts whispering to her friend about my bloody Valentine and you just will stand there. You won't know how to respond. And you think, man, if I'd only listened to the second episode of Beyond the Pond about shoegaze, I would have so much to say right now. But you don't. And then you feel awkward. <laughs> I hate it when the old lady behind me starts talking about shoegaze and I don't know what to say. Seriously, but you know what to say because you were there when we recorded that episode. I do know what to say now. And uh, <laughs> this is our 15th episode. I uh, can't believe we've made it this far. We are middle of our teenage years right now. Um, we are going to be talking about the July 30th, 2003 Sense and Subtle Sounds from Camden, New Jersey. An absolutely epic jam from 2.0, our first 2.0 jam. Very, very excited about this. Um, so the way that this works, if you have not listened to Beyond the Pond before, so we take a fish jam, uh, break that jam down, give you a bit of historical context about the jam, what was happening within fish at the time, why this jam is so important, really just uh, break down as much as we possibly can, play a little bit of it, and then we talk about a couple different bands, a couple different songs that thematically are related to the jam. Now these could be related in a sonic sense, they can musically sound like the jam in question, or we can have a different uh, take on you know, the uh, historical context of the jam at the time and uh, go and kind of think about a jam um, or think about songs uh, that relate in a slightly different way. Um, so again, our, our 15th episode, very, very excited about this. I think that you guys are going to really enjoy some of the music that we got picked out here for you. And some of the musical themes or otherwise that we are going to touch upon in this episode are musical dream states, discordant live runs, and July 29 through August 3rd of 2003, the evolving perspective of Fish 2.0. And yes, Virginia, we have jumped into 2.0. And on that note, let's get to the fish. July 30th, 2003, Sense and Subtle Sounds. So why are we talking about this jam today? This was a monster set one jam from, uh, in hindsight, one of the strongest overall shows of 2.0. Fun little factoid about this, of the 30th longest fifth jams ever played, this is one of three to be played in the first set alongside of the... Uh, 11:30, 1997, Wolfman's Brother, 
and the 724-1999 Fluffhead. This was the sixth ever Sense and Subtle Sounds played, and I would say this is still the peak jamming performance of the song. Uh, as many post-2003 versions are intro lists, this is unquestionably uh, the best overall performance of the song to date. Yeah, I certainly don't disagree with that assessment. It's, uh, I think, in your opinion, also my opinion, that's the best song of Fish 2.0. Yeah. And I think we'd also say, other than probably Mercury, the best Fish song written since 1.0. Totally. It's, a, it's also the best song on Undermine. Not saying much, but, you know. <laughs> It definitely better is. than nothing. Yeah, and uh, I would say that this is a, a great opportunity to plea to the band: please return to playing "Sense and Subtle Sounds" with the intro for every performance going forward. Please, please, please! It clearly inspired an amazing version at the Man on uh, August twelfth, two thousand and fifteen, and while we've had some great versions in the years since, this song just needs the intro into it. Yes, I would agree with that. And certainly the last 12 minutes of this jam that we're going to focus on are uh, not all 12 minutes, but some of that portion. It's uh, certainly some of the most interesting stuff they played in summer 2003. As the band pushes through the usual sense and subtle sounds jam, it has a nice key change. They go into a very plaintive G major jam that almost feels like they're playing Piper. And then they dive into the underworld for the jam's conclusion. This is a must-hear John Fisher performance. He was lots of summer 2003. He was the MVP of the tour. He had the symbol that he could not get enough of, and he's just bashing the heck out of it at one point. Yeah, he was... uh, You listen back to any recordings. I know that you and I were talking before we started recording about the second set from the show, which we'll get into, but... Um, particularly you hear it on like the bug and, and the twist Fishman just it's it's like he had three limbs uh, that he was playing with on this tour I don't think I've ever heard him this sh- as sharp as he was this tour it's really really remarkable um, so Sense and Subtle Sounds this is a song that when it debuted on 7-7-2003 um, and to this date uh, has really been played with in most cases improv in mind Um, going through its history there are a few high quality sense and subtle sounds jams that we wanted to highlight um, alongside of this version the 730 2003 version so one that I would definitely point you to uh, from a run that uh, rarely gets mentioned for high quality jams although there were a lot of jams the uh, August 12, 2004 version from Camden as well. This closed out the last proper set of Fish 2.0 before they moved on to Coventry. The very hypnotic digital delay loot jam in a uh, otherwise uh, nothing burger of a show, if you will. <laughs> Not a show that I feel the need to revisit anytime soon. Otherwise. I listened to that show on the bunny in line for Coventry and uh, I have fond memories of that experience but I've listened back to the show and I don't really think I need to listen to it anymore (laughs) on the complete other side of the spectrum would be August 12th 2015 11 years later 
that's probably uh, that set it comes in is a top five set of 3.0. It's a classic version with the intro. I mean, that might possibly be the best jam in that set. Just a very, I don't, I don't think it ever goes type two, but it's just a very, very soaring, majestic version of Sense and Subtle Sounds from um, that, that man show. Yeah. Um, I guess the twist would probably be the best jam of that set, I would think of it. Yeah, the twist is a huge, huge highlight of that set. And um, I'm pretty sure the sense does get into some type 2 range, but the fact that you have sense and then hood after it and the original peaking jam from sense was so similar to hood, it's it's a really unique thematic twist. Um, but yeah, absolutely, that set was unbelievably strong relentless yeah and let's see finally more recently we have July 15th of 2017 uh, the sense is kind of overlooked because that's the show with the 27 minute simple however um, the sense and subtle sounds jam despite a pretty pretty dire segue into it is a uh, very high quality, interesting, almost what was that sort of like a staccato funk jam? I forget. Yeah, there's some start stop jamming in there. Um, a really, some really interesting use of effects from Trey. Uh, yeah, very, very overlooked, and I mean, probably rightly so. The simple is a really epic jam, which we covered in our uh, 10th episode. Um, but that sense should definitely be re listened to, and it, uh, definitely holds up in the larger canon of the uh, of, of the song's career um, so taking a step back from you know talking about just sense in general this show uh, 730 2003 really interesting show in fish's history um, at the time this was really regarded negatively for a couple of reasons uh, it had a very bizarre set list or it has a very bizarre set list um, and it has an overt emphasis on extended jamming in an era filled with extended jamming and very much of a lack of sense of humor in an era that was devoid of humor almost entirely. Um, beyond this, this show came on the heels of the instant classic Burgettstown 03 show, July 29th, uh, the night before, and this being right before the IT Festival, it's kind of in a tough slot. Um, many at the time, I recall, regarded the following night as the more supreme show uh, for a more classic set list and uh, some more fun jamming. Um, but as 3.0 got underway, some five years later, six years later, it quickly became apparent that the band was taking a long view. Uh, approach and they were focusing on relearning their songs, tightening their chops, and playing an extremely diverse rock-based show, which left many fans fans pining for the days of extended jamming. Uh, As a result, sometime around summer 2009, uh, 220-2003, the Winter 03 tour, and 730-2003, this show really rose to uh, prominence and began to be uh, regarded as two of the strongest shows of the era, uh, thus making 731-2003, the second out of Camden, uh, the underrated show of the tour. Uh, Time certainly can be funny in that sort of way. (laughs) Um, But, you know, in hindsight, uh, not only is this show regarded as one of the strongest shows of 2.0, 
the entire run, 729 to 8303 from Burgettstown through it, might be the strongest week of fish in the last 17 years. And if you compare it to uh, runs like 619 2004 to 626 2004, 1025 13 to 11 113 mid fall 2013 tour, as well as the entire Baker's Dozen, I would say there's an argument to be made. Though those are some pretty strong runs in their own right. Uh, if nothing else, this is really, it would seem to be the capstone of 2.0. Uh, what say you, Dave? Oh, I mean, it's certainly a very strong week. I mean, you start off, you've got like Burgett's Town, Rarity Field Set 1, and then uh, Epic, Epic Cross-Eyed and Painless. Of course, this was a live fish release, so we're pretty familiar with it. Um, July 30th, the show we're talking about, fantastic jamming, some serious rarities. I think that was the only performance of Dylan's You Ain't Going Nowhere. There's a Spock Brain in the first set. The July 31st show had a bit of a classic rock show approach and a very, very fluid second set with like a 25-minute Harry Hood, Huge Piper. And what would you say about It, briefly? Uh, it is a run I feel like... That's a festival that we're going to need to cover at some point in the near future. Mm. But um, eight twos, set two, and set three are pretty perfect, according to my ears. Uh, with the down disease, the waves, the discern, the waves, how it segues into Bowie. Um, and then in the third set, you've got your rock and roll, um, your seven below, your uh, sense and subtle sounds. Even the end of um, Spread It Round, uh, just some really, really phenomenal jamming in this whole show. And then you've got the uh, Tower Jam. Um, this is a great showcase of 2.0 jamming. And then 8.3, bit more of a disjointed show, but uh, you got a 25-minute Chalk Dust, a 31-minute Ghost, a 39-minute 46 Days. I mean, this remains to be the high point of the all-in jamming approach of summer 2003, um, a tour that um, I would say other than 710-2003, I think is the only show without just a monumental 20-minute-plus jam that just dives super, super deep into one or multiple songs. It's just unbelievable to overall and really peaked very well towards the end. What was the one they opened with Spices? Is that July 10th? Yes. Ah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> there you go. Um, I need to confess to the listener that really my knowledge of Fish 2.0 is not quite what it should be. And part of the fun of this podcast is that it forces me to go back and explore some of what I may have missed. Because uh, for me, when Fish broke up, I was in law school. And then when, or I should say, when Fish went on a hiatus, I was in law school. And then when they announced... The final breakup and embarked on ostensibly the final tour. I was studying for the bar exam and really couldn't leave the house anyway. I kind of mm-hmm. took the angle that these guys are done. I'm going to have a career. Fish shows won't be really part of my life, and I've got to accept that going forward. And of the two of the three shows I caught in 2003 were horrible, being uh, the infamous B.B. King show from February 24, 2003, and the Turkey Tour show in Philadelphia, I want to say November 29, 2003, after which I felt nothing. I'm told <laughs> I'm told Twitch is good that night. I don't know. 
Okay. But it's something simply suited off to me. Yeah, that was uh, that was a very very weird show, and and uh, I would not blame you for for feeling nothing. It's interesting. I, I I'm very different. I got into fish right before 2.0 and started going to shows in 2.0. 2.0.3 was my first show. Um, so I had a great obsession with it and then was devastated when they broke up and only in hindsight did it completely make sense that they broke up. And on that note, let's listen to a segment of the jam from Sense and Subtle Sounds from July 30th, 2003.
Okay, I hope that you all enjoyed that segment of the July 30th, 2003 Sense and Subtle Sounds from Camden, New Jersey. Um, so moving into our first segment of music, this is uh, we're going to talk about musical dream states. So that uh, portion of the jam that you heard, uh, most of the start of it and uh, kind of what led to that big peak there was uh, in G major and uh, same key that the Piper jam is in. And it really reminds both of us of this just kind of like ethereal uh, dreamlike state where you feel like you're floating along with the band. Um, it feels to me when I listen to it like uh, early morning, um, kind of like right before the sun fully comes up, maybe you're on a long road trip or something, and the world moves at a little bit of a different pace. Your thoughts are at a little bit of a different speed. So we wanted to feature a couple songs that sounded in a lot of cases like that. So the track I have for you is from a band called The Amazing, it's a title track off their 2015 record called Picture You. Uh, this is the third album from the Swedish psych rock band. And this is, in my opinion, one of the best albums of the decade and one of the prettiest albums that I've ever heard. Uh, the first time I heard this record, I was blown away by the production value. And I was blown away by just how beautiful it was, and I could not stop listening to it. Um, while... You know, of note, this is a vastly different band from, say, the War on Drugs. What's comparable here, and one of the reasons I think I was so attracted to them initially and keep coming back to them, is their alchemistic dedication to studio nuance, as well as the fluid song structures that make the songs feel like they're emerging from the muck before returning to their origins. The amazing want you to hear the origins and depth of their songs, not simply the peak moment of them. That's something that intrigues me greatly, the idea that these songs kind of rise up from the ground, you hear them, and then they fall back down towards the ground. Um, The song in question that we're we're talking about, Picture You, is a nine-minute drift through the clouds um, that begins with the opening tracks uh, broken, the opening song's concluding chord, and then builds from there before returning to the original chord and flowing into a very ri- a, a big rising instrumental peak. Um, the entire album, Picture You, feels like 4.45 a.m. midsummer following an all-nighter, a sunrise drive over a mountain pass, waking up in the desert in the middle of winter and watching the world reawake. You know, in short, there's no hurry. It's a very contemplative journey where space to breathe is the only point of this of the album. This was my number six album of 2015. It's a continual grower and an album I seem to find endless reasons to play and to absorb. I listened to it this past weekend as we were uh, researching for the show, and um, it's one of those records I just had to kind of like sit back into the couch and listen to. Uh, I was trying to compile notes and I just like had to just pause and let the world just kind of drift by for a little bit. It just has that effect on you. Um, Like I was saying a bit ago, the fluid structures of the album, the really vague lyrics, they offer or they allow a nearly unending listener interpretation. Uh, Perhaps too much, some would say, but uh, it's one of those albums that fits time and space and fits the type of person um, and the type of listener you are. Um, which allows it to fit into a number of musical life spaces. Um, Like many great growers, 
this is a record you need to be willing to spend some time with. Uh, it doesn't ask for much, but it will uh, return with grace, beauty, and nuanced musical changes. If you're willing to give it time, I assure you it will deliver in droves. Um, so without any more praise from myself, let's go ahead and listen to Picture You off of the Amazing's 2015 record of the same title, Picture You. about the amazing i know that's a record that i've listened to in the past a few times i thought was very good i'm going to try to really get into it make a pack to listen to it even further like you suggested so all right so the band that i am going to talk about is one of my favorite bands called the sea in cake and the album is called we as in like yes in french and the song is called Afternoon Speaker. It is the first song on the album. Sometimes you want quality music that is nevertheless it's okay to ignore. Call it classy background music, music other than Steely Dan in a very nice dental office, music that you want your ear holes specifically to fall asleep on the commuter train. In 2008, I was uh, commuting to the town of Great Neck in Long Island from New York City, which took a 35-minute train ride. And on the ride home, I'd say 90% of the time I was listening to the Sea and Cake, hoping, demanding even, to conk out and have a nice nap before uh, getting off in Penn Station. So this band came together in 1994. It has four official members. And they're all darlings of the Chicago post-rock scene of that era. Uh, the front man is Sam Preka on guitar and vocals. Bassist Eric Claridge. And um, him and Preka have held from the band called Shrimp Boat. 
the Natalie Dressed, Arthur Prude on second guitar, and John McIntyre on drums, who we also know drums and Beyond the Pond favorites Tortoise, in addition to producing a bunch of albums and just being a Chicago man about town. I know that the band also, they frequently utilize vintage keyboards, such as like Wurlitzer and uh, Fender Rhodes, and they tour with a keyboard player, but I don't think he's a permanent part of the band. And uh, while I mentioned Tortoise, the C and Cake do not sound like Tortoise, whereas Tortoise is abrasive and scronky, the C and Cake is mellow, extremely mellow, pleasant, ideal to fall asleep to. They touch on a variety of styles ranging from jazz to bossa nova grooves, there's some kraut rock, there's uh, some tropicalia, and there's some blue-eyed soul. But all you really need to know about them is that they're chill. Like, uh, you know, Sam Precop doesn't so much sing as, I guess you could say, breathily whisper. And you get the idea that he's singing with his eyes closed. And having seen them live once, I can confirm that's exactly what he's doing. They have nine studio albums, the last of which, Runner, came out in 2012. And they're sort of like ACDC in the sense that all their albums sound pretty similar while offering just enough variation in production to stand out from one another. For example, 1995's Nassau sounds the most like a stoned basement jam session. 1997's The Fawn is where they start dabbling in electronics. 2003's One Bedroom is the one where they do Bowie's Sound and Vision. You get it. Um... And the one that I'm going to showcase is 2000's Wii, which came out right at the start of my senior year of college. And I think of this one as their tropical album. Maybe because there's palm trees in the cover art, but the album sounds exactly like lounging poolside in the Bahamas with a drink and one of those little umbrellas in it. And of all their albums, this one probably calms me down the most. You know, being... A married dad with a three-year-old in a country run by a very unhinged individual. We need some chill. And the Sea and Cake is your band for quality chill. So let's listen to Afternoon Speaker, the first song off of We by the Sea and Cake.
show where we're going to recommend some new albums for you. Before I do that, uh, David, thank you for the introduction to The Sea and Cake. I was unfamiliar with them myself. Uh, well, I knew of them, but I hadn't really listened to them. But anyway, I listened to We on the car ride home from work the other day after I picked my son up, and I had to turn it off halfway through because... I thought I was going to actually fall asleep on the road. Uh, very, very relaxing, uh, hypnotic, and wonderful music. I hope you guys all enjoyed that. That would have been hard to explain to the cop. That <laughs> would have been like, very hard. <laughs> you'd be like Tiger Woods getting pulled over at 3 in the morning. You'd be like, it's not alcohol. <laughs> I swear. I've got a prescription for this. It's Trump. Right. Uh, <laughs> Um, all right, so new albums. So uh, the album I'm going to talk about is by an artist named Chad Van Gallen. Uh, the album is called Light Information. This is the sixth LP from the Calgary multi-instrumentalist, producer, animator, director, songwriter, not politician. He's not our second Canadian politician we're featuring, uh, but he does a ton of different artistic stuff. Um, really incredible record. Been listening to it a lot on repeat these last couple of weeks. This is a very insular album. It fuses noise, bizarre melodies, disjointed song structures, synths, lo-fi production, and danceable beats. Uh, in many ways, it sounds as revolutionary as an album of its sort would have in 2006, but somehow it still fits today and somehow still sounds really fresh. This record ticks off a ton of boxes for me in that it feels like a mix between Panda Bear-focused Animal Collective, LCD Sound System, Pre-Reflector era Arcade Fire, Woods Songs of Shame, Cryptograms era Deer Hunter, and some of Brian Eno's ambient inspirations. This is really, for me, uh, an album that if it had come out in 2009 would have probably been my favorite album of that year. Uh, parts of this record were recorded in Van Gallen's re- remote cabin outside of Calgary. And for how urban the soundscapes are, it works in a lot of ways like the National Sleep Well Beast. And it feels like an isolated woodsy album that was written amongst pine trees, campfires, and long morning hikes. Even if it is uh, very you know, urban and, uh, and city-oriented in its sound. Uh, thematically, this record touches on the issues of mortality as it was recorded while Van Gallen's father was dying of cancer. And the isolation, pensive reflectiveness, and curt humor that plays a role in this period on one's life is apparent throughout the entire album. Uh, very fitting for this episode, and one of those records that would be greatly appreciated by Fish fans who appreciate the band's non-traditional song structure an off-kilter use of melody. This sonically feels like a late-night dream record and is one I put on in the late hours of the evening this past weekend, cracked a beer, and it was very, very, very fitting. Some standout tracks I'd recommend just to get you into the album. Uh, Opener, Mind, Hitchhiker's Curse, Prep Piano and 770, Old Heads, Broken Bell, Static Shape. In short, this is a record I would recommend to anyone listening to Beyond the Pond. I think you would greatly enjoy it. What do you got, Dave? I have the latest from Cut Copy. The album's called Haiku from Zero. Not the greatest title, 
that's okay. <laughs> so Cut Copy, they're an Australian dance rock band. They're largely the project of their front man, Dan Whitford, but I think they've expanded to at this point with a viable quartet of permanent members. So their stick is to essentially mine several flavors of 80s dance pop and throw it into a package that suggests it gets played by actual musicians, but not too much. Um, there's a lot of programming involved in the live show. It kind of features Whitford at times throwing his fists in the air at the right moment. I know they've said in the past, basically, they're just trying to reinterpret their own record collections, which that's perfectly fine. Uh, Their biggest influence would probably be the Manchester, England dance pop legends New Order. And I think the closest contemporary, if you're looking for a band that sounds like them, would be Hot Chip, who are also very good. And uh, like New Order, you do not look to cut copy for meaningful lyrics or really anything aside from expertly produced happy dance pop songs. If you took a shot every time Dan Whitford said the word love, you'd be dead. <laughs> they just like talking about love and not giving up love or giving up on love. And But it works. And uh, Haiku from Zero is their fifth album. Yeah, 2008's In Ghost Colors is classic, classic dance pop. 2011's Zonoscope was my favorite album of that year. Then in 2013, they put out Free Your Mind, and I hated it. Hate, hate, hate. <laughs> it was supposed to be a concept album about Manchester 1989, which we admittedly discussed on this show. You would think I would enjoy that, but they just kind of copied the style and didn't add anything new to it, and it got boring. Haiku from Zero is very much a comeback. This is the cut copy that I like. It sounds instantly familiar, yet somehow it sounds original. There's lots of funk guitar, lots of curly cute keyboards. It's unquestionably a little cheese ball. It's very fun and catchy, and it really finds them playing to their strengths much more than their 2013 record did. So uh, I would recommend it highly. All right, so getting to our last segment here. Uh, This is where we are going to explore a couple discordant live runs. So in thinking about this uh, section here in this segment of of music, Dave and I were talking a bit about how, you know, this 730 2003 show and this uh, Sense and Subtle Sounds are really high watermarks of 2.0, but... You know, one of the challenges listening back is you know where 2.0 went. You know that it ended in a field of mud in uh, northern Vermont. You know that Trey almost succumbed to drug abuse and potential overdose. Um, there's a lot of darkness that hangs over these shows and these jams that we love so much. Um, you know, I remember f- getting the sense that you know fish would come out on stage during certain 2.0 shows and just never say anything to anyone. They would just play music, just go as deep as possible. Um, And so we wanted to explore some similar uh, live performances from other bands. So we wanted to focus on a couple of uh, bands and albums that we both love greatly, but that, for whatever reason, released live records that uh, showcase some pretty serious darkness looming over their bands. So the first band we're going to talk about is one of the most important and influential bands of the last 20 years. 
a band that single-handedly helped continue the importance of stripped-down guitar-led indie rock, made Neil Young a long-standing indie rock icon, a band who, without them, the market for My Morning Jackets Rise to Providence, Strand of Oaks, Kurt Vile, even the War on Drugs, William Tyler, Fleet Foxes in a Way, late-era Deer Hunter, lots of bands that we hold dear to us would not exist. The band I'm talking about is um, Magnolia Electric Company, a band who once went by the name Songs Ohio, who recorded an album named Magnolia Electric Company in 2003, which is a fantastic album before changing their name. Hope you're not confused. (laughs) This is off of their 2005 live album, Trials and Errors. The song that we're going to play is the opening track to it, At Least the Dark Don't Hide It. So this record, like most of uh, Magnolia Electric Company, Songs Ohio's uh, music, is led by the singer-songwriter frontman Jason Molina. He is everywhere on this album. He is everywhere in each of these songs. His stamp on this music is, um, without him, there is no Magnolia Electric Company. There is no Songs Ohio. Um, This record is a really brilliant update on Neil Young's mid-70s live albums, such as Time Fades Away, Tonight's the Night, Live Rust. It's a tribute of sorts, but it's also an elevation on the uh, formula of the band to that point. All songs from this record are, are from a 2003 recording in Brussels, shortly after Songs Ohio broke up and became Magnolia Electric Company, which was shortly after the album Magnolia Electric Company came out. Um, similar to Neil Young's 1973 record Time Fades Away, most of these songs were unreleased, and Jason Molina even quotes... Tonight's the night during the album's closer, The Big Beast. It's uh, very much of a love note to Mr. Young in in a lot of cases. Uh, So a bit about Molina. Jason Molina was one of the most impassioned, personal, and darkly rich songwriters indie rock has ever produced. Uh, An incredible, emotional, empathetic, and troubled soul. His words charted his own personal decline. Um, Molina never touched booze until he was 30, and from there he drank away his success in just nine years, passing away in 2013, uh, following years of irrelevance where he could never muster a set of albums to compete with his 2003 masterpiece or his 2005 live foray, the one in question here, Trials and Errors. Uh, Critically, uh, this is an album that is both revered and dismissed. Uh, Pitchfork's own Rob Mitchum and longtime ambassador of Fish and the Dead for Hipsters wrote it off in large (laughs) part for its jamminess, which surprised him uh, if you go back and read his review. Uh, Whereas some other publications viewed it as an upgrade on the Songs Ohio established formula. For me personally, this was my intro to the band at the time I first heard it, summer 2008, while hibernating in Alaska, Following the breakup with my now wife, songs like The Dark Don't Hide It, Pretty Eyes for a Snake, and Almost Was Good Enough spoke directly to my heartbroken soul. Regardless your feelings on the record, it represents the waning end of the peak of Molina's career. 
While 2007's Fading Trails is a fantastic studio record in its own right, this is the last time Molina was really able to pull himself together for a live performance. The last eight years of his life, as noted above, would be somewhat of a slog as he gave himself away to alcoholism. Just a side note on this, and it ties into kind of the larger theme of the episode. Um, Many of Molina's friends had no idea how bad his disease had gotten until mid-2009. Much of the next three years were spent in and out of rehab facilities in Chicago, in England, in Indianapolis, and New Orleans. Tours were canceled, and at one point his family posted a note to Molina's label, uh, label's website explaining his battle and seeking donations from fans. Much of the year of 2012 was spent with him inside of a hospital as he tried to regain control of his life. When he died of, uh, in March 2013, it was ultimately a result of organ failure due to chronic alcoholism. The story is all the more meaningful for Fish fans as we all watched in 2003 and 2004. 05, uh, I saw Trey live, um, and 2006 as well. Basically, that whole four-year period, Trey battled really awful substance abuse issues um, before ultimately being arrested in 2006. As he said, the arrest saved his life and provided a completely different ending to his story than what many assumed at the time um, and really birthed a incredibly positive revivalist period for him as a human being as well as for the band uh, Fish, and has led to some amazing memories and amazing music since then. Sadly, it did not end that way for Molina, um, but I would definitely encourage you to listen to this record as well as pretty much anything else that Magnolia Electric Company and Songs Ohio put out. It's just amazing mood music, some fantastic songwriting, and um, will really hit you in the softest part. Um, So here is... At least the dark don't hide it off of trials and errors from 
Hey, Brian. Thank you for that primer on Jason Molina. A very incredible, albeit seemingly doomed artist, who uh, I definitely have been known to enjoy on more than one occasion. So, in terms of discordant live runs, I'm surprised it's taken me 15 episodes to shoehorn this band in, but I'm going to talk about Mission of Burma and their live album, The Horrible Truth About Burma. Gonna play the song Peking Spring. Mission of Mother Effin Burma, one of my favorite bands of all time. They were formed in 1979 with Roger Miller on guitar, Clinton Connolly on bass, and Peter Prescott on drums, and Martin Swope on tape loops. Uh, other than Swope, they all contributed to the songwriting. They all sang lead vocals at one point. And Swope, what he did was live sound manipulation, which added to their uh, psychedelic noise of the live show. They were based out of Boston, Massachusetts. And at their heart, they were, uh, I guess, classified as part of the early 80s post-punk movement amongst Beyond the Pond favorites such as Husker Du and Portland, Oregon's Wipers. In addition to sort of being an East Coast take on the Cleveland, Ohio punk rock scene contained the likes of Paraboo and the Dead Boys. Both of those bands sprang from the earlier Cleveland proto-punk band Rocket from the Tombs, different podcasts for a different day. Uh, but of all these bands, Mission to Burma may have been the loudest. You know, Roger Miller sounds like he's playing three guitars at once. He loves to use a tremolo effect. In the case of the song Weatherbox, off of uh, both their first full-length album verses, as well as the reissue of the live album we're going to discuss here, essentially he turns the guitar into some sort of Morse code object that really predicted Rage Against the Machines, Tom Morello doing something similar by several years. Um, I know that Morello often cites Roger Miller as a major influence. So, in Mission to Burma's first incarnation, in addition to early singles, they only released one EP, the uh, rather incredible Signals, Calls, and Marches, and one full-length album in 1982 called Verses. Yes, like the Pearl Jam album, but better. Um... Think of clouds of guitar augmented by a crack rhythm section and very good songwriting. Connolly's songs are more melodic than Roger Miller's, and when Peter Prescott steps up to the mic, it's all about hollering. However, it's the live album, The Horrible Truth About Burma Suggests. The live shows are very loud and slightly unhinged. And the band was forced to call it Twits after their 1983 tour because the guitarist Roger Miller had developed severe tinnitus. And he was forced to wear uh, these rifle range ear protectors on stage on that last tour. And that last tour is uh, what is captured on The Horrible Truth About Burma. However, I would be remiss to say that uh, like a phoenix from the ashes... Mission to Burma got back together in 2002 to play live shows, and they released a fantastic on, off, on 2004, and then three more albums, the most recent of which was Unsound in 2012. I don't know exactly what changed with regard to Roger Miller's ears. Each time I've seen them live, he still has those badass ear protectors on, but they still kick up a hell of a racket for 
being kind of pudgy dudes, and I guess in their mid sixties, uh, mid sixties at this point, and they're uh, one of those bands that kind of has the strange distinction of being around longer and producing more albums during uh, what's their second time around. Um, the horrible truth about Burma was recorded on that farewell tour in 1983. It wasn't released until 1985, and it captures the raw energy of the Mission to Burma live show, albeit in a way that kind of sounds like a quality bootleg. This is not a pristine soundboard recording. It could have been an audience mic. It could have been some guy holding up a boombox. I'm not entirely sure, but that's kind of what makes it really fun. It also contains a bunch of songs that would have been on their second full length but did not end up there. Although a few of those songs were eventually included in On, Off, On. And you also get an awesome cover of the Stooges' 1970 and Paraboo's Heart of Darkness. That said, I would say if you really want to get in a mission to Burma, start with Signals, Calls, and Marches first, then proceed the verses. And if you're hooked at that point, and you should be, then you can get into this album. Um, the song we're going to play, Peking Spring. I think it was the earliest single, and it got played to death on uh, Boston Indie Rock Radio at the time, so the band kind of got sick of it, which why it wasn't included on their first EP or their first album. But it's loud, it's kind of sloppy, and it's uh, a very good encapsulation of one of my favorite bands. So we're going to play Peking Spring off of The Horrible Truth About Burma by Mission to Burma. Here goes. episode hope you guys enjoyed our 15th episode where we talked about the july 30th 2003 sense and subtle sounds just giving you a quick recap of the songs that we played here so in our first segment which we focused on musical dream states we gave you the amazing picture you off the record picture you followed by the sea and cake afternoon speaker off of the record we 
finally, in the second segment where we talked about discordant live runs, we had Magnolia Electric Company's At Least the Dark Don't Hide It off of Trials and Errors, followed by uh, Mission of Burma's Peking Spring off of The Horrible Truth About Burma. Just give you a quick reminder, we are active on social media. Twitter, you can find us at underscore beyond the pond. We have a medium page, the medium.com slash beyond the pond. And we've got the master Spotify playlist, the beyond the pond podcast songs. Usually right before the episode goes live, we will put uh, as many songs that we feature that are available in Spotify. We'll put into the beyond the pond podcast song playlist. At this point, there's over 100 songs in that playlist. Sorry, last week I didn't remember to do it, I think, until 24 hours after the episode went live. My bad. But at this point, you can press shuffle on the playlist and get uh, quite an interesting Beyond the Pond experience. In terms of our publishing structure, so we uh, aim to publish an episode every other Tuesday. So this is going to go live here on Tuesday, October 3rd, followed by our next episode will go up uh, two weeks after that. Uh, So keep an eye out for this. Um, Every other Tuesday, Tuesdays have absolutely no feel as we have well established, which is why you need to go beyond the pond. Uh, We've been saying this for the last couple of weeks. We've got uh, some guests coming on here. We promise that is true. Uh, We have... uh, our first guest-related podcast coming up in our next episode. We've got some really exciting stuff happening here over the next uh, few weeks as we are going to be talking with some other big music fans, other big fish fans, uh, really people who can give us uh, and you guys some some great insights and some deep dives um, uh, both within fish and outside of fish. And finally... I'm looking forward to a week of Beyond the Pond where we don't have to end this with a memorial tribute. And unfortunately, this past Saturday, Charles Bradley passed away. He was the 68-year-old screaming eagle of soul who had quite an interesting life, focusing on the 2012 documentary Charles Bradley's Soul of America. He didn't sign his first record deal or really get famous until his early 60s when he recorded for the... The, uh, the Daptone label, also home to uh, Sharon Jones, home to Lee Fields, the Menahan Street Band. Just uh, an incredibly soulful guy who I was very fortunate to see live a few years ago. I know he put out three fantastic records and made a lot of people very, very, very happy. So uh, rest in peace, Charles. I'm sure you are really bringing it wherever you are. And on that note... I'm David Goldstein. I am Brian Brinkman. And join us again in two Tuesdays. We will join together. We will go beyond the pond. No time for dreaming. Dreaming, dreaming. Got to get on.